0: Uh, it's really my great pleasure to, uh, to talk to you tonight about my passion, which is uh, pancreatic cancer research. I've been working on this disease for uh, well over 30 years now uh, at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. And I'd like to tell you about some of the new initiatives that are going forward uh, from the University of Nebraska and also about some of the really, uh, I think, bold ideas that we have to go forward. Uh, before I start, I'd like to... Uh, Also take this opportunity to thank Hugh and Jane Hunt, uh, who have endowed my uh, chair in cancer research at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. I can't tell you how much this means to me personally, and also how much it really does help uh, and encourage all of the faculty who work diligently in cancer research when uh, these chairs are funded. Um, To start, I'd like to tell you about why pancreatic cancer is a killer. Pancreatic cancer uh, develops in about 50,000 patients a year in the U.S. currently. And uh, as you heard uh, from President Carter, probably about 45,000 patients die a year. So the five-year survival is approaching 10% for some populations uh, in that. And that's an an improvement in what we've been able to do in the disease. But the fundamentals that really kill you with pancreatic cancer have not uh, been addressed adequately yet. First of all, uh, it's a silent killer. So pancreatic cancer generally appears in uh, midlife uh, to later in life in individuals. And the typical presentation of this disease is that it, that it uh, is kind of hiding in your body for two or three years prior to being diagnosed. It doesn't give out a lot of warning signs early on that you have cancer. And so when people present in the clinic, they actually are very late in the disease process. And so, in fact, it's so late that the disease has become metastatic, it's spread to a lot of different organs, and it's uh, very difficult to treat it at that point in time. That's one of the reasons that we've been focusing on early detection uh, for trying to treat pancreas cancer. If we could detect it earlier, then we feel like we would be able to really cure more patients uh, at an early time point. Why is it difficult to diagnose it? Uh, uh, What are the other reasons for that? Um, Well, another problem that we have in diagnosing pancreas cancer is that uh, it's very deep in your body and so it's very difficult to image it and the tumors that arise at that site really can't be distinguished from from the surrounding tissues very easily. And So we need better imaging techniques to really try to find the earliest lesions so that we can diagnose them at that point in time too. And then another characteristic of pancreas cancer that causes it to be so lethal is the fact that it metastasizes early. That means that even when the lesions are very small, these tumor cells will go and set up shop in other parts of your body. And from there, then, they will grow and compromise the function of those organs. That's one of the reasons that the disease is very lethal. And it's also, uh, the fact that that the the tumor cells metastasize early are one of the reasons that it's also um, uh, very difficult to treat. So if you understand more about the biology and why that's going on, it may be that you can come up with interventions, once again, early in the disease process to to try to cure patients with this disease. And then finally, in the end of life times with pancreas cancer, the patients with pancreas cancer tend to fall off a cliff. So there's something different about the end stage of disease in these patients than patients with other cancers. And so that's one of the reasons that you know the lifespan is usually something like two years in a good case. Sometimes patients with advanced disease will pass away within six months. And so really understanding the things that cause patients to, uh, to die uh, in, a quick, in a quick manner at the end of life is very important. And we have active research in that area that we'd like to talk about. Um, one of the really significant advances that's happened in the state uh, recently is that, um, that the Board of Regents have approved uh, Pancreatic Cancer Center of Excellence at the University of Nebraska Medical Center and the goal of this is to transform state-of-the-art um, for pancreas cancer management by providing a comprehensive and interdisciplinary holistic care that begins with the diagnosis of the disease early and comes up with very specific treatments for different types of cancers that arise and then rapidly adopts these treatments uh, as the cancer evolves and tries to escape from treatment. Now this Center of Excellence is uh, funded by a couple of different sources. Uh, there's a uh, a new chair that's been spearheaded by Jim Armitage uh, that will actually fund a new faculty member in this space. But most importantly Senator, Senator Coulterman at the legislature has spearheaded a research um, funding plan that would be funded by the legislature that would provide a lot of support for the Center of Excellence. Uh, I think it's public knowledge now and I'm really pleased to say that uh, we have recruited a very significant individual who will be the head of this pancreatic cancer center of excellence. His name is Sunil Hingarani. He comes to us from the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in Washington. Um, Sunil is a fantastic researcher. He's also a medical oncologist. Uh, He's a great individual. His father died of pancreas cancer. He's, he is one of the most passionate individuals about trying to cure this disease that I've ever met. I've known him since the beginning of his career, and I've collaborated with him for quite a, quite a long time. And so we're very excited to have him come here and bring his program. And in particular, he will be spearheading a new clinical effort. We will try to bring some of the discoveries that we have made in the laboratory into the clinical realm. And so I think that, all told, this will actually uh, further enhance our reputation as a national uh, and perhaps international center of excellence for both studying and treating and diagnosing pancreatic cancer. So I'm uh, very excited about that development. Today I'd like to tell you about some of the other initiatives that are going on uh, at the university and uh, just give you a sense of our overall plan about how we would like to defeat this killer. Um, And so this is an overview of what I'll tell you. I'll tell you about our early detection efforts. I'll tell you about some efforts that we have to try to develop new imaging uh, modalities. I'll tell you about our efforts in the space of making vaccines and immunotherapies. Uh, One of the reasons to do immunotherapies and vaccines is that these are relatively non-toxic ways of trying to treat cancer, basically trying to get your body to reject the cancer using the resources that it has within itself by enhancing that. We have a lot of evidence that pancreas cancer actually causes suppression of the immune response and that this is one of the reasons that it progresses. We also have evidence that this may be why the patients die quickly at the end of life too, uh, because of the fact that it may cause infections uh, that actually cause the final demise of patients. And so we think that actually enhancing their immune response is is a very important area to work in. And I'll tell you about new molecularly targeted therapies. As anyone who has been treated for pancreas cancer knows, The cytotoxic therapies that we have for this disease currently are are unpleasant. And so uh, we would like to come up with a new, um, we'd we'd like to be able to design and deploy really a series of new types of weapons against cancer that are not as toxic on your normal tissues but that really target very specifically the cancer cells. In the early detection realm, I'd like to just uh, tell you a little bit about um, some of the things that we're we're thinking about. If you take an overview of the early detection of pancreas cancer, as I said, it presents late and it's been thought for a long time that there are no signs and symptoms that accompany uh, the earliest stages of the disease. And it's not like breast cancer where you can just do a mammogram occasionally and and actually pick up the early lesions. In, In pancreas cancer, it's so deep in the body, you really can't image these things, and so you have to really come up with uh, other ways of trying to detect the disease early. And if you if you look at the literature, and if you look talk to a lot of patients and get a lot of experience, what you realize is that there is a prodrome that probably accompanies the development of pancreas cancer. And what I mean by a prodrome is that there are certain signs and symptoms that appear uh, in the patients that. Uh, probably are harbingers of the fact that they've developed very early stages of pancreas cancer and are causing other problems in your body but that just haven't really been recognized collectively as a group yet so that we could really do the diagnosis of cancer. So the idea would be that um, to take a series of these things and put them together in a way that we could develop an algorithm that the primary care physicians could use as a way of trying to identify patients who may be at risk of pancreas cancer and then we could bring them into um, uh, you know, an advanced center to really work them up further for this. This is the overall goal in the longer term. So, one of the features that occurs uh, in the development of a lot of pancreas cancer patients, more than sixty percent who present in the clinic, is the development of what's called new onset diabetes. And so, new onset diabetes uh, happens in in patients who are uh, who don't have type two diabetes or type one diabetes. And so, it happens later, uh, sometimes later in life. Now. Uh, There's an epidemic of diabetes currently in the country as everyone knows and a lot of the diabetes that is currently going around is caused by diet and lifestyle, weight gain and these sorts of things. And so most people who develop diabetes don't get diabetes because of the fact that they have cancer but they get it for other reasons. But there's a subset, uh, probably a little bit less than 1%, so only 1 in 100 or less people who develop diabetes because they actually have a cancer that's causing the diabetes. And so the the, the endocrinologists who diagnose this have, have called this type 3C diabetes, actually, which means it's something in your pancreas causing the diabetes. And it could be other diseases, but often it, it ends up being a cancer that's causing this. And so we would like to be able to develop molecular tests and other diagnostic methods where we could differentiate the diabetes that's being caused by cancer from diabetes that was being caused uh, just as a, a as a, by other factors. Uh, and so for example, if you have new onset diabetes and you have weight loss at the same time, instead of having weight gain, um, that's one of the signs and symptoms that may suggest that you have something else going on in your pancreas that uh, you, know, you may need to be looked at. And so in order to do this, this is a very difficult uh, thing to study because there's a lot of diabetes cases. So what we need to do is to go out into, the, uh, into Uh, rural Nebraska and and even into our own city and really uh, talk to the people who have new onset diabetes and try to get them enrolled in studies so that we can follow them more closely and try to see if we can differentiate those who have cancer from those that don't. So as an example of the funding needs that we have for this, practically speaking, we need research nurses to recruit patients into observational trials. Uh, we need students and postdoctoral fellows in the laboratory to develop new biomarker tests and to study these samples and physicians and nurses to interact with and educate primary care practitioners. And so a lot of research dollars actually go to employ people in these positions. This is what a lot of the costs go for, but this is what's needed really to, to enhance these sorts of studies. Another big area of early detection is, in the, uh, is inherited risk. And by inherited risk, I think most people know these days that cancer runs in some families. And uh, because of the advances in uh, genetic sequencing that we've uh, been able to do as part of medical science, we now understand that there are certain inherited uh, alleles that you get that actually put you at risk for cancer. And so the way this works is that cancer is a multi-step process. And so it takes, uh, let's say, problems in four or five gene products in order for you to have a cell that would convert from a normal cell into a cancer cell. And if you have an inherited risk in one of those uh, genes, then you're one step along the way. And so families that have these inherited alleles actually are one step along. Um, only probably 10 to 20% of inherited risk is defined. So of all those patients who have who have family histories, we only know the cause of those genes and maybe 10 to 20%. So we need to identify families that have uh, inherited risk of cancer all across the state, and to bring them in so that we can actually look at their genetics and understand what may be uh, causing a predisposition to cancer in these patients. And we also then need to follow them longitudinally to see if they develop cancer, if we can predict cancer in those patients using some of the tests that we're developing. Uh, We currently are funded by the National Cancer Institute actually to do this and we are following about 500 patients in this cohort currently. And we'd like to expand that to more than a thousand if we could. That's our goal by looking at additional inherited mutations and in all the other families that are out there in cancer. So I consider this to be an important thing for the state of Nebraska. It's an important thing for our research effort, and it's a, it's really a critical project. Once again, to fund this, you need nurses to recruit patients. We need um, funding to actually do the sequencing studies and a lot of the experiments that you have to do to define this further, and then students and postdocs to work on this. So. Um, those are the sorts of things that you would do in the inherited risk space. And then another area that we're interested in expanding into is uh, is essentially smoking. Um, uh, and so there are still a number of smokers uh, you know, in the population, and smoking is a risk cancer for many is a risk factor for many different cancers, not just pan- uh, lung cancer. Most people associate smoking with a risk for lung cancer. But in fact, when you smoke, um, you get carcinogens from the smoke into your blood and it circulates throughout your body and it can affect a lot of other organs. and it's one of the biggest risk factors for pancreatic cancer. So we're very interested in um, following patients that are smokers that may have premalignant lesions in their lungs and they're being followed anyway uh, for those by uh, getting CT exams, let's say, every six months. We'd like to start broadening the screening in those patients so that we could actually look for pancreas cancer and other cancers in those patients as well. So this is uh, an important way of integrating all these things in. Both with the inherited risk and the smoking, I'll point out that you're not just at risk for pancreas cancer; you're at risk for multiple cancers. And so, you know, we view this as a uh, as the sort of uh, project that could really help a lot of other cancers at the same time, even though we're, our principal focus is on pancreas cancer. I mentioned new imaging modalities, and one of the big problems in pancreas cancer when you're trying to detect it is the fact that it's very difficult to image this. It's deep in your body cellular composition of the tumors really that arise there are, it's very difficult to differentiate those often from the surrounding tissue. And so we need to develop new agents that, uh, that would bind to the cancer cells that are present there and could be detected by, you know, really very powerful imaging techniques. So for example, PET imaging is something where you put a positron emitter uh, onto uh, some sort of an imaging agent and then you go in and you can image uh, using this uh, radioactive tracer You can actually image at very high sensitivity, very small lesions in patients. The problem is we don't have enough good PET agents that would detect the cancer lesions. And so so we and others are really working on developing new agents that would allow you to uh, essentially develop a a good imaging modality to, uh, to detect the very smallest lesions. Obviously, if we have a blood test that we think we could deploy that would suggest that somebody has a pancreas cancer. Uh, you still need to see where it is so that you could go in and cut it out. And so this is really a very critical step, I think, in the overall process to try to address these needs. Um, And then we we do have investigators here who are working on agents that could be used for both PET imaging, but they also could be used to help the surgeons. And so, uh, for example, uh, there's an investigative team at UNMC who is working on uh, actually conjugating fluorescent molecules to some of these imaging agents and then injecting those into the patient uh, right before surgery. And then what happens is you get a sort of a fluorescent light signal that comes up from the tumor at that site. And then the surgeon can go in and visualize very precisely where the tumor is, and more importantly, where the margins of the tumor are so that they can get a clean resection of the entire tumor. And so that's a that's a very active, I think, area of research at UNMC. And it's something that, uh, that we need to expand on, really, in the area of pancreas cancer to uh, help. Um, so I'm gonna transition now a little bit to talk about immunotherapy. As I mentioned before, uh, we need new therapeutic modalities. Uh, I personally am trained as an immunologist, but I'm also um, uh, you know, a big fan of trying to develop vaccines against cancer. These vaccines could de- be deployed in two settings. Um, one setting would be, for example, if you had a, a group of patients who were at risk for pancreas cancer that we were screening in our uh, early detection clinic, If you have somebody, uh, you know, right now all we can do is screen those patients and wait for the cancer to develop, but it would be much preferable if we could actually go into those patients and offer them some sort of a preventative intervention. And so vaccination in this setting may work. And so uh, without getting too technical, one thing I would like to point out about pancreas cancer that's unique is that about 90% of pancreas cancer has mutations in a gene that's called uh, KRAS. KRAS is an oncogene that drives uh, the proliferation of these cells at the earliest phases and the fact that 95% of these cancers acquire this mutation means that you could probably make a vaccine to try to prevent cancer in those. And it would make a lot of sense in patients who are at risk, family risk of getting pancreas cancer to give them a vaccine that would target the KRAS cells, uh, mutant KRAS expressing cells, because in that way you could try to eliminate those at the earliest stages and to really prevent them from from, uh, progressing. Now, it's very difficult to to come up with tumor vaccines for a number of reasons. And once again, without getting too technical, uh, the reasons are uh, principally that all of us are different in our immune responses. Uh, And it has to do with our genetic composition and with the way that the immune responds to these differences that we have. This actually explains, uh, you know, why people have different responses to COVID and to uh, influenza and lots of other things. Some people get very sick with it, some people don't. It has to do with variations in the immune response. And uh, the same thing applies to cancer. Um, patients who have progressed with pancreas cancer probably have developed some sort of immunosuppression against that or have a have a reduced ability to respond to those mutations that are in the cancers. And so it would be, uh, really beneficial to understand why that's the case and to develop new therapies that would help you to uh, really improve the immune response against those pa- uh, against those tumors. This sort of immunity could also be applied to patients with advanced disease as well. And so if you had defined a spectrum of uh, mutations that appear in cancers, those are the same sorts of things as that should be recognized as being foreign by your body. If you could induce um, immune responses against those then you could probably take out just those cells and not the surrounding normal cells in a way that wouldn't be very toxic. So we have a a fairly large effort at UNMC where we're trying to really improve on this concept of vaccines uh, for pancreas cancer. A uh, corollary to that then, um, sorry I went the wrong way. Uh, is to develop other sorts of immunotherapies. And so, uh, and the other sorts of immunotherapies that you have would include cellular therapies. And this is where you would actually take out cells from the patient's own body and and direct them against the cancer. Now, these could be responses that had already developed and that were too weak to respond or that had been rendered uh, unresponsive by the tumor. You could improve them by essentially treating them outside of the body and, and jacking up the immune response, if you want to think of it in those terms, and then putting those cells back in to the patient. And We actually have a clinical trial that we're designing to do that with patients uh, currently. And then you could also imagine developing uh, so-called CAR T cells and other sorts of cells that have been redirected to try to attack the cancer. And there's a number of those that those sorts of studies that are available uh, currently. And so we're, we're invested in those as well. Um and so to do that, you need uh, once again, you need personnel, but you also need for this some some very specific sorts of um uh things, so you know the actual process of taking cells out and of improving the immune response and then processing them in a gMP facility that's a pharmaceutical grade facility is very expensive and so Uh, In order to develop this procedure further, you really do need a lot of uh, specialized funds to to generate and expand those cells and to do the initial clinical trials to prove that that sort of therapy works. Um, And then uh, same sort of thing for cellular therapies. Uh, We we have uh, a lot of different cell types that can kill the tumors and we can redirect them. So I think this is really a very uh, important area of research. Uh, Sorry, I'm going the wrong way again. Antibody-based diagnosis and therapies are another arm of the immune response and so antibodies are very specific protein molecules in your body that can target some of these different mutations. Antibodies are what you develop in response to viruses so they very specifically can go and eliminate viruses or bacteria or other infections that you get. They can also be used to detect some of these um, molecules that would specify cancer. So for example, antibodies could be tagged with these PET imaging agents and could be injected into patients as an imaging modality. Uh, they could also be used directly to block uh, some sorts of uh, uh, of the processes that drive the cancer. So there are antibody therapies that are currently used in, in other cancers now. And so we need to develop more of those uh, really for pancreas cancer. And so. Um, there are a lot of ideas at UNMC to do this. Uh, there are new antibody technologies that are now available to apply and do this with. And so uh, this is another very promising, uh, I think, bold area that, that, uh, that we're moving into at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. And then finally, uh, I'd like to talk about new molecularly targeted therapies. So one of the things that we have been doing for a long time here has been studying the process of pancreatic cancer. And as I said before, there are, uh, you know, it's a silent killer, it, uh, and then it suddenly, uh, uh, the symptoms become apparent later on. The disease is metastatic early. So we understand more, much more about the molecular processes that cause pancreas cancer to be so aggressive and to be very different. And so uh, with that understanding comes the ability to develop new drugs. And we have a number of investigators we are coming up with some very new strategies uh, to attack these molecular processes. And some of these things are biological in- interventions. Uh, there's a novel area called protax where you can uh, target uh, these molecules for degradation in unique ways instead of just giving small molecule inhibitors. And then there are lots of other sort of new ideas on the block in this space. And so we have a lot of interest, I think, in, in really pursuing this. And so um, I believe that brings me to the end of the prepared presentation. Uh, I'm really very enthusiastic to take your questions, and I'd like to now welcome uh, Amy Volk, who is going to come, and uh, as your questions come in, then she will present those questions to me, and I'll try to address anything, uh, any questions that uh, you have.
1: Thank you, Dr. Hollingsworth. My name is Amy Volk and I'm the Senior Vice President and Chief Development Officer with the University of Nebraska Foundation. It's my honor tonight to be able to ask your questions of Dr. Hollingsworth. So to submit your questions, there's a link at the bottom of your screen and you can click on that and follow the prompts and I will get your questions to Dr. Hollingsworth. So let's begin. Uh, Dr. Hollingsworth, uh, from your understanding, why is the incidence of pancreatic cancer increasing?
0: So there are a couple of reasons. If you talk to the epidemiologists about this problem, one of the uh, principal factors is just the aging population. So pancreas cancer becomes evident in, say, in your late 40s, early 50s. The incidence increases through 60s, 70s, and 80s. And as the baby boom transpires, and as we have more people in that population, you actually see the relative incidence in the population increasing. That being said, uh, there are some other discrepancies that we can't completely explain. So, for example, uh, among African-American women, the incidence is increasing just on an age-adjusted basis. And so uh, there may be risk factors in that population that we just don't completely understand. We would really love to be able to try to understand that better if there are environmental factors or other things that are actually contributing to that.
1: Thank you. You received funding for the concept of developing the early detection clinic you talked about in your presentation. Where do you believe we can make progress in this disease in 5 to 10 years from the work of this study.
0: That study is critical to this. And so uh, one of the interesting things that happens in uh, in that study is that we uh, actually have patients come in. There are 500 patients in Nebraska now who are and actually from all over the country who come in to this study and participate in it now. And they, they come in and donate blood every six months um, and, uh, and then we also follow up with a lot of these questions about the prodrome that I talked about earlier in this to see if we can actually detect those signs and symptoms early on in this. Um, these sorts of biological samples for study do not exist anywhere in the world. And so to be able to collect samples prior to the diagnosis of cancer in this population means that we will have real samples to test our biomarkers in. As a way of really detecting the early, uh, you know, the earliest stages of the cancer in those patients, and so this is a, you know, there are only a few centers in the world, literally, who are trying to do this sort of study, and it's one of the reasons that we've been funded to do it. Uh, we've done a good job with it, and we'd really like to expand those efforts. So this this is uh, really critical to the discovery of blood-based biomarkers, and also to this uh, other diagnostic features in the early detection setting that we should be able to identify.
1: Can anyone enroll to participate in the early detection clinic, or who's a good candidate for
0: that? So if you have a known uh, inherited risk factor, such as a genetic um, uh, you know, mutation that's known that runs in your family, uh, you certainly are eligible. That means you have two or more directly related affected individuals then you can enroll in this study. In addition to that, we would, uh, if you don't have a known uh, mutation, but if... Uh, your family has a high incidence of cancer. We're very interested in enrolling you in this study. Uh, of course, we'll explain all of the, uh, you know, all of the things that go along with it. But one of the one of the important things is that we could discover maybe the gene that is at risk in those individuals who uh, would be able to, uh, you know, provide new insight really to the world on what uh, risk factors. Uh, what, what things put you at risk for developing pancreas cancer? I talked about the the nuanced diabetes cohort. We n- need lots of patients in that group too, so we uh, we would like to recruit those, and then smoking too. I think this is a this is a big need in the state to really do that. So any of those sorts of individuals can enroll. Uh, probably if you're just in the general population and you're uh, you know you don't need to come and enroll in this study, we're trying to identify high risk patients. But certainly if you had a lot of signs and symptoms and you were worried about uh, developing some sort of cancer, and then we would uh, certainly welcome those sorts of individuals too.
1: And that's the next question. What are the symptoms of pancreatic cancer? What should someone watch for?
0: That's an interesting question. Yeah, I was, uh, I was just on a plane coming back from uh, the East Coast at a meeting uh, two days ago. And I sat next to a fellow on the plane whose brother died of pancreas cancer uh, about five years ago. And I sat down and I told him, well, uh, this is what, these are the signs and symptoms that I'm aware of right now. So, uh, you know, I mentioned before um, that you could develop new onset diabetes. So if you have new onset diabetes, that's certainly one factor. Um, If you uh, have other risk factors too, you should certainly, you know, worry about those things like smoking or chronic pancreatitis. But beyond that, um, some of the earliest signs and symptoms include things like low back pain. It doesn't go away so you think you hurt yourself doing exercises but or something but this actually doesn't go away now there are 50 million people in the u.s. at any given time with low back pain so not every case of low back pain goes along with this but there's a certain type of low back pain that doesn't go away that um, you know that can't be explained that may be associated with that so that by itself wouldn't be something that I would worry about but if you saw that together with some other features that may be uh, something to think about Interestingly, a lot of uh, patients present with uh, changes in appetite or changes in taste perception. So uh, you know, I've heard patients say, oh, food doesn't taste the same as it used to," or um, you know, I, I just don't, uh, you know, just don't feel like eating certain types of foods. And these could be early warning signs of uh, changes in your digestive capacity that comes from the pancreas cancer, but also other systemic things that happen. Certainly, unexplained weight loss would go along with that. So if you had unexplained weight loss together with the onset of diabetes, that I would consider that to be something that I would uh, think about. And then there are a couple of other things that I'll mention. Um, interestingly, it's patients with pancreas cancer often present with unexplained depression too. So there's a lot of depression out there too, but if you, but uh, a lot of times the, the fellow on the plane next to me said his brother just retired, he had a fantastic family. They just bought a bunch of new houses and everything. And when he visited him six months before his diagnosis, he said he was depressed. And I just couldn't figure out why. He had no reason to be depressed. And then he had four of these other features too. So it turns out in that case, putting all of those sorts of signs and symptoms together, you know, would have added up to the fact that, uh, you know, maybe we should work you up for pancreas cancer in that setting. There are a lot of there are some other things too. I won't. I don't have time to really go through everything, but those sorts of uh, characteristics are the sorts of things that we're looking at trying to develop into a diagnostic algorithm that we could put into the primary care setting.
1: So. How early can it be detected, and how do you get tested? Is it a blood test, or what is the test?
0: So uh, let me put it this way: it can be detected very early, and the patients in who it is detected early, are the only ones who ever get cured. So if you look at the 10 year plus survivors, it's very low percentage, maybe uh, you know one or 2% of those patients. But if you look at those, those are almost invariably patients who were detected very early in the disease. And what typically happens is that they get a pancreas cancer that develops in a place that causes a problem immediately. So if the pancreas cancer develops near a duct and blocks it and they get other symptoms that are associated with it, then they go in and try to look at that and they can identify it early. Or there have been a lot of anecdotes where the surgeons have been in working on something else in the pancreas and oh they notice that this small lesion is here and so they may cut it out and do the operation at that point in time Uh, oftentimes those are the patients who uh, who actually survive a long time so under unusual circumstances it is detected early and that does cure patients uh, you know when you can surgically resect it but unfortunately the vast majority of patients don't present with those kinds of features early on And so, uh, you know, on both sides of it, that gives us hope that if we could have better imaging and better diagnostic tests, we really could impact the disease.
1: Are you interested in young college-age students who've lost a parent to pancreatic cancer, who have the genetic testing from that individual who've passed? If yes, what would be an example of what that person that young person would experience?
0: So the answer is yes. Uh, You know, uh, I go to Tumor Board, I'm a PhD, but I go to Tumor Board and listen to these cases. And I can tell you that we've seen in Tumor Board cases of pancreas cancer in people in their late 20s and 30s. So if you have enough inherited risk in your family that you certainly could develop it earlier. And also it's known that if you have genetic risk, the age of onset of cancer is earlier too. And so I think getting involved in a screening program uh, you know, would be very beneficial to us and may put you at ease too. Now, uh, this is a personal decision. A, a lot of people sort of don't want to be involved in that because they're worried about it. Uh, people should consider that carefully. But uh, if it were me, uh, you know, and I had a genetic risk for cancer, I would want to be involved in a screening program and I would want to go and try to contribute, you know, blood samples and do everything I could to really try to help. and. And from a young person, having blood samples drawn over a number of years actually would be very beneficial in looking at the changes in the biomarkers, uh, you know, if they did develop cancer later on.
1: Could you share information on who to contact for enrollment or how does that happen?
0: Uh, So yeah, um, so the person to contact is actually uh, the nurse who works in our clinic right now. Her name is Suzanne Wessling at University of Nebraska Medical Center. I won't blow up her phones tonight but if you want to send me an email note at uh, mahollin at unmc.edu I'd be happy to pass your information on to her and she'll contact you with that information.
1: Of the areas you talked about, these targeted areas are clinical trials approaching, and will they be conducted solely at the University of Nebraska Medical Center or elsewhere?
0: So, in the immunotherapy space, we're currently trying to develop two of the uh, two immunotherapy strategies. Uh, you know, as we speak, uh, for example, for one of the adoptive cellular therapy protocols, which has been sort of graciously funded by actually donors. Uh, you know, principally. Um, we are currently doing our what are called IND enabling runs, so you have to get approval from the Food and Drug Administration to do that, and so we're trying to conduct those studies right now. And then we're partnering with a couple of companies to actually undertake studies, other immun- immunological studies uh, currently. So, And those would be for uh, patients with both resectable disease in the first case, so if you had early stage disease. And then the latter study would actually be for people with any kind of disease in the later stages. So yes.
1: What is one thing that you think looks promising or is an exciting development in research that will make the biggest impact in pancreatic cancer treatment?
0: Uh, as I, you know, obviously I'm biased towards immunotherapy. I think that's uh, that's one thing that is, uh, you know, important. I think early detection efforts are going to yield fruit, I think, in the next five or ten years. And so I think that those are obviously very important things too. Um, you know, the advances that we've made in pancreas cancer has sort of come in from other fields. So the current standard of care, full farinox, uh treatment actually sort of migrated over from colon cancer and some people tried it in pancreas cancer and it worked. We've done a lot of that with other therapies that have worked in other cancers and none of these things seem to work. Um, the National Cancer Institute has, has instituted a lot of different sort of targeted studies across the country including things in therapy. And there are a lot of other therapies in this sort of non-immunological space that are coming down too. I can't tell you one that'll work now, but I think as we understand more about the genetics uh, that contribute to cancer in different patients, that that sort of understanding will allow us to develop both immunotherapies and also targeted therapies that'll work better.
1: And I think this will be our last question. How does the Pancreatic Center of Excellence treat out-of-state patients?
0: Uh, the same as we treat in-state patients. <laughs> yeah. So the uh, pancreatic uh, cancer center of excellence is a—you uh, know—we don't discriminate based on uh, state borders or even you know any kind of border. Uh, if you're a candidate for treatment there, then that would be great. We would we would like to be a resource to the country, uh, perhaps to the world, for treating uh, pancreas cancer. And so I think anyone. Who uh, would like to come here? We would uh, we would welcome you uh, to to come and participate in any of the studies that we have in the Pancreatic Cancer Center of Excellence. So. so uh-